0: This week on Double Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Brian Logger talks about reverence for the Eucharist. Why did people lose faith after Vatican II? What does it look like to be a Christian people? What's the proper way to receive the Holy Eucharist? Well, let's find out. Here's Father Brian Logger being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Ken Billinger
1: guest this morning father brian lager the pastor of saint joseph parish in hayes and chaplain at the como catholic campus center at fort Hays state university he's the former pastor of sacred heart in plainville and saint thomas parish uh, in stockton father brian attended saint john vianney theological seminary in denver and ordained in the for the diocese in 2012 and his home parish is St. Paul's Parish in Angeles, Kansas. So there you go. Father, welcome this morning.
2: Ah, Good to be back. Thanks, Ken.
1: Well, we're going to talk today about a favorite topic of mine and a favorite topic of many, and that's the Eucharist and the reverence for the Eucharist. So um, let's just get, we're, we're going to kind of take it where it goes this morning, but um <clears throat> Just to kind of kick things off, it's my understanding, prior to Vatican II, the Mass was referred to as the sacrifice of the Mass, and then changed to the liturgy. Why is it – and I still call it the holy sacrifice of the Mass. I, I mean, so is that – is that I think, more accurate? When I, you
2: I think the uh, – the, you can't call it just the liturgy because there's actually more things that are the liturgy than just the mass. Uh, the liturgy encompasses uh, the liturgy of the hours, you know, which you and I both pray. Mm-hmm. And uh, it encompasses the mass. It encompasses the little liturgical rites. All of the sacraments are, are a liturgy. And so uh, so to say it's just the liturgy is actually... That's a much broader thing than the Mass itself. And so uh, a lot of the documents talk about uh, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So it's, it might be a common common language. Just some of the language that came down out of Vatican II, I think it was probably one of those things that, well, the Vatican II says this, that's what people were told and taught and if you actually go and read the documents that actually never did and uh, I found that a lot you know in seminary and, and uh, mm. before seminary that and even now people say well, well Vatican II did this or did that and it's just like if you'd actually go and read the documents, you can find that it actually didn't do any of that, and that's just people's perception of what they thought was going to happen. Right. So,
1: and it, it seems like that was uh, very common with Vatican II. I mean, so many things right. that were absolutely taken,
2: just taken at. Well, I, even if you talk to some of the guys that were in seminary during that time, uh, the things that they were being taught. Was oh, just wait until the council is over and all this is going to change and it'll be fine. And so I've talked to guys who have said that they were told in seminary that don't worry, you'll be able to marry when this is all over. Uh, you'll be able to be a married priest when all this is over. Really? And, and so and so when that didn't happen, they left seminary because they were made all these promises that <laughs> that were not the case. The the church was very confused during that time. It, it, it's a very interesting period in history, and some people want to go back in, in history and say, oh, the, the time in the 50s was the best time for the Catholic Church, and there was so many abuses going on. We we know now there was a lot of uh, physical and sexual abuse going on during that time as well. To to say that there's a certain period in Church history that, that the Church was the best would be a poor understanding of church history (laughs) uh in in a lot of ways the church does best when it's under persecution and uh and so really the first couple hundred years the church was under persecution people died for the faith and Mm -hmm. and if you were a christian you pretty much knew you were going to die yeah and uh and that's that's not the case today unfortunately people today live a very comfortable christian life which is you know there's nothing wrong with not being persecuted it's great that i can go say mass publicly you know we've been having outdoor masses drive-in masses and uh it's great that we can do that uh i don't have to hide in the catacombs or i don't have to hide somewhere saying mass so it's right. a wonderful thing that i know that i'm not going to my death when i go to say mass but so yes it's referred to as the holy sacrifice of the mass the, the liturgy encompasses a much broader topic than just the mass but the, i know that um like the Byzantine Church, which Father Ryan talked yesterday about the different, some of the different rites in the church. The Byzantine Church and some of the uh, more Eastern churches actually refer to it as the Divine Liturgy. And so we call it the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which comes from the, ma- the word Mass itself comes from uh, the dismissal uh, of the Mass. When we say ite misa S," which is the Latin for uh, go the Mass is ended, uh, Mass comes from that word misa. Uh, which means uh, mission, to go on mission, to go out. And, you know, we're not supposed to keep it to ourselves, but to go out into the world and preach the gospel. So, so that's kind of where the word Mass comes from. So it's the holy sacrifice. It is the one true sacrifice of, of Christ on, um, on Calvary, that not that we are re sacrificing Christ, but, but that we enter into that sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago. This is the beautiful thing about Jesus' death. And his resurrection and, and his entire life is that even though it happened uh, almost 2,000 years ago, we, because, it, because it's God and he took on human flesh, it not only does he affect time, but he affects eternity. So it's kind of this, the horizontal nature of, of his life and, and his acts, but also the vertical nature as well as it affects time and eternity. And so... And so all of that comes into play, and we unite ourselves to Christ. And so it's not that Christ is being re but w- that we are entering into that sacrifice from 2,000 years ago.
1: Right, so. and, and, it's, um, and one of the things, and, and maybe we can talk about this later, because I, I, I guess, well, before we get too far, because we were talking about Vatican <laughs> II, but I, I guess I want to get your thoughts on this. Because there's so much, from what I understand, and everything I've read, and Vatican II documents, and the things we've gone through mm-hmm. in our through our formation, it seems that there was a total, maybe the I don't know if the word is misunderstanding of Vatican II, totally taken out of, you know. I mean, sure. when you look at the overall picture of Vatican II, there was a lot of good that was going on, but it was taken differently. I mean, uh, maybe right. My, was there is that an accurate statement or what?
2: My perception <clears throat> of what happened is and now you know i was not alive during that time uh, my parents were in their teens uh during during vatican ii but what, what my parents remember is that the mass was celebrated one way one week and the church w- had all the high altars and, and everything and then the next week all the high altars were gone and mass was different and that that's that's the way that my parents what they saw not that's not what happened everywhere but that's that's what happened in in some places a lot of places and when i lived in slina when i was in slina i would go over and talk to father leroy metro and he was uh he was just ordained right i think 1963 or 1964 so even in the midst of the council or Mm -hmm. shortly after i don't remember which but he had to teach his pastor how to say mass because Because of all the changes that happened, so he was kind of learning some of them during the seminary but but his pastor was much older than him, and so he was teaching his ma- pastor how to say mass, which is kind of a funny thing that a associate would a young associate because mm-hmm. he was ordained you know yeah. pre- he was probably twenty five twenty six his pastor was probably in his 50s or, or or older, and so he was teaching his pastor how to say mass but my, my perception is as to kind of what happened at least uh, to the common person is that When your understanding of the Church is the Mass, that's the very outward expression of who we are as Catholics and the way that we celebrate the Mass and the way that we worship. That's the number one way that people know how we worship is the Mass. The way that you worship and the most public expression of the way that you worship and the way that you live your life through the Mass is so dramatically changed, then people get the perception that everything changes. And so, uh, when, when the mass changed so dramatically as it did from the from the priest facing east, what people call having the his back to the people, that's not what was going on, but um, that's how people saw it and viewed it. Um, it's more the, pre, the priest is facing east, ad orientem, to the east. There's there's always been this understanding in the church that uh, we face towards the way that the salvation will come. So we face towards the cross. It, and it's even better if we can face to actual east because the rising of the sun is a symbol of Christ rising from the dead. Um, and so that's what actually is going on when the priest faces that direction. And, and it's, it's why a lot of places has gone to putting a crucifix on the front of the altar for priests because he faces the direction of salvation, facing the east from which the salvation comes. But when all of that changes so dramatically, people's mentality of, oh, the church must be changing everything. And so if the most visible expression of who we are in the mass has changed, then they must be changed. their doctrine on sexuality, they must be changing their doctrines on the Eucharist. They must be changing their doctrines on, on Mary, on faith, on the practice of uh, penance on Fridays. The practice of all of this stuff must be changing if, the, if, if this is changing. And, uh, and you talk to people, uh, the changes were so dramatic that people lost their faith. Um, there's little, literally people that walked away from the Catholic Church. They're just like, I don't even know. This is, this is the church that I belong to my entire life, and I don't even recognize it anymore." And, and, and they left. Um, and, and some of the results of that have been uh, a lack of understanding of, of what we believe in the church, which has caused so much confusion in our day-to-day. It seems, and, and like I said, I was not alive back then, uh, but it seems that there's a common understanding of what we believe, and this is what we believe, and, and people knew that, whereas today you can go from person to person to person, half of them don't know what we believe. And you know, our our topic today, the Eucharist, uh, we even, there there was a popular study recently that said that uh, there's only 25% of Catholics in the pew, or Catholics that call themselves Catholic, and that's a whole nother study, but um, 25% of Catholics actually believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. They're present, made present by the priest, uh, through the priest's prayers, by the power of the Holy Spirit on the altar and and remains there and we keep them in the tabernacle for us to to go and visit and to pray such a small percentage of actual catholics actually believe that that there's definitely a crisis of faith in in our church and and in our world and so so where where does all that come from well it it began when when there is a lack of understanding of what was actually going on in the council and and i don't really want to talk about what went on in the council because i wasn't right. there and and there's a lot of a lot of views sure, <laughs> on that absolutely. that I don't want to get into because right. that's yeah. uh, there, there's a lot of controversy around all that um, yeah. and and what I believe doesn't matter uh, and and what actually happened I don't know there's a lot of theories on on what actually happened and why the mass looks like it does today there's theories on that why and and all that and and I. Just not interested in going into that,
1: <laughs> and we won't do that. But I, I was just curious your thoughts on that, just, sure. just simply because it's been something that comes up a lot with people. You know, my mom, I, I can remember that. saying everything was fine till Vatican II. Well, it was. Well, it I mean, wasn't actually Vatican
2: II, and and this right, is, this is right. what people. If if they actually go and read the documents, the documents are beautiful. Right, they are. That's They're what fabulous. I'm saying. There's yeah. some phenomenal teaching, and and what people call well, Vatican II said this. You won't actually find. You won't find that in the documents, you know. Right. Well, Vatican II changed this. No, it didn't actually. You go and read the documents. And um, and what what Vatican II was doing was putting in modern language our teachings of the faith. Mm-hmm. Dogma can't change. Right. <laughs> that's exactly. what that's what we need to remember. Yeah. Dogma can't change. I think that's a, that a great given way. given to us by Christ. Great so, way to put it. Or even even before that, you know, our, our gospel this <clears> last weekend was the road to Emmaus, Ken, and uh, and and that's in a lot of ways the. Uh, for, for at least for us, for, for Latin rite Catholics, and, well, for all Catholics and anyone that attends mass, that is the foundation for what we do, the Liturgy of the Word and, and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And so the word and sacrament as yeah. as we colloquia, colloquially speak of it I shouldn't say that because it's a hard word to say. <laughs> but but I, I think it's important to go, for us to go back actually to the last Supper where it all began. You know, Jesus' entire life is leading up to the climax of his life, which is the Last Supper, Holy Thursday night, Good Friday. And, and Easter Sunday morning. And then, and then of course, uh, his ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But, but if we go back to Luke 22, um, yeah. verses uh, yeah, twenty two fourteen 14 uh, through 23. And when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this is the institution of the Eucharist, and we can read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke St. John actually goes a different route and, you know, he gives the, uh, the uh, there is no institution narrative in, in the Gospel of John, uh, but, but he has the long uh, high priestly prayer in 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 the gospel of john that's a beautiful prayer to read praying for all of the people but but this is this is jesus taking the bread and taking going into the passover the passover meal uh which is which is the annual passover celebration of of the jewish tradition that many jews still celebrate today but of course they don't have the temple and the sacrifice the lambs but but jesus enters into that and he changes it uh it, enough so that he uh inserts himself into the passover and and the the new covenant that he is establishing for the new covenant that is passed down through the centuries that's passed down to us today and so it says that he takes the bread, breaks it, blesses it, and gives it and he does the same thing with the chalice with the cup uh, he takes it he blesses it, he passes it and and he distributes it and so we, and so that 's what that 's what we see in our Masses today and in the Eucharist that we celebrate today, but, but then a, a deeper understanding of, of what is actually going on there comes in John chapter 6, which uh, the readings at Mass this week are from John chapter 6, and we're reading the entire chapter of John chapter 6 this week, and, and the beautiful thing about what St. What John does in, in chapter 6 is he begins with the multiplication of the loaves, uh, Jesus crossing the sea. And then he has this teaching on what the Eucharist is, and so if we go to John chapter six uh, verse thirty-five, this is a long passage, but I think it's important for us for us to hear it and for us to read it. And so you guys can pick up your Bibles and read along, but <laughs> or open your app on your phone. I use that a lot too. But John chapter six, beginning at thirty-five, Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life," and and we know this as the bread of life discourse I am the bread of life he who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me and him who comes to me I will not cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has all that he has given me but raise it up at the last day For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that man that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such as the fathers ate and died, He, he who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Verse 60. Many of the disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe, for Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the 12 and one of you? Anyway, one of you is the devil, but in 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 that passage, Jesus says, uh, not only does he just say, "I am the bread of life," but people say, "Well, how can how can anyone believe this? How can this be true? How can you give us yourself as as bread?" and uh, and Jesus doesn't just say, oh, I'm just kidding. It's a symbol. Yeah. He doubles down. He says, truly, truly, which uh, in, in other versions say, amen, amen, which oh, okay. it is to be. It is to be, you know. Um, and he says, I am the bread of life. I am, the, I am the blood. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and one of the things that was pointed out to me uh, back all the way back in college that, that began changing my understanding of, of what was happening Uh, at the Mass is that that word for eat is not just, uh, it's not just, I don't know, it's not not just eating. It's not like you're just popping something into my mouth. But it's, the Greek word is actually, I want to say it's uh, tragere or tragere. I forget exactly uh, what the word is, but it's it's a word that, it's more like a verb that means to gnaw on Mm -hmm. and to chew on Mm -hmm. as if you are putting a, a, a piece of steak in your mouth and you're Chewing it up with your teeth. And so that's what Jesus is telling us to do, to literally <clears throat> gnaw on flesh as if we as if it were a steak or something like that. That's what we are doing when we receive Jesus. And I want to clarify this is the resurrected body of Jesus. we're not we're not we're not uh, chewing on his his uh, literal flesh like my flesh right here, but it's his resurrected body that He gives to us that comes and is made present to us, that begins. At the Last Supper, in which he gives us the, the theology of, of our understanding of who he is in John chapter six, and then the understanding of what is going on uh, through Saint Paul in First Corinthians chapter eleven, uh, what is understood through the through the Didache, which was written right around uh, ninety A.D. Saint Justin Martyr, who has written in who wrote around uh, one hundred and fifty A.D., everybody understood that. That bread that is taken at mass is transubstantiated, which is a which another class I took in college that helped me to understand what transubstantiation means. It's it's a philosophical phrase that came about through Saint Thomas Aquinas for us to understand the process or the instantaneous moment that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus. So we have a substance and accident. So the substance of kin and, and uh, Father Brian is our soul. That is our substance. That, um, that never changes. The accidents. Ken and I look very different. We both are balding, but that's 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 one similarity. Uh, but uh, but our our you know we have different eye color. We have different hair color. Uh, my beard's bigger than yours. Uh, you're taller than me. Those are your accidents. We know who kin is. We know that you are kin, distinguished from Father Brian, by the way that you look. But our substance is our soul. And, and God creates our substance to make us who we are. Our, sub- our soul is the life-giving aspect of who we are. And so what is happening in the Eucharist is that that bread, what looks like bread, tastes like bread, has all of these accidents, the things that make it bread-like, is actually changed at the moment of consecration when the priest uses the words in his power to call down the Holy Spirit in order to transubstantiate, to make the bread the body of Jesus, and to make the wine the blood of Jesus. In that moment, this this philosophical understanding of how this happens, we know that Jesus is Body and blood are made present here before us, and remains with us until the substance is actually gone, until we, until the bread no longer exists. So, as long as it remains as bread, uh, Jesus's and wine, uh, Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity is present there with us. And so, we have this beautiful, beautiful teaching of the Catholic Church that is extended. From Jesus all the way to us today
0: We need to take a short break right now But stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio Whether you're listening via radio, internet, smartphone app Or Amazon Echo Please know, we'll be right back with Father Brian Logger Talking about Reverence for the Eucharist We're back on Double-Edged Sword Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. Reverence for the Eucharist. With Father Brian Lager. Ken Billinger conducts the interview.
1: We're talking about the reverence for the Eucharist this morning with Father Brian Lager. Father, one of the questions, sometimes people have asked me this, and I've, I've actually heard two different things, so I guess I'm going to put you on the spot <laughs> here. <laughs> but when they talk about, when during the Eucharistic prayer, yeah. when does that wafer actually become the body of Christ? And is it through the words, this is my body? Is it?
2: Uh, you know, um, there's actually there's a we talked about this in seminary i can't remember the (laughs) the exact the exact phrasing and saint thomas aquinas talks about it but i I don't remember exactly what it is but it's from from the moment of the epiclesis Mm -hmm. uh to the um to the anamnesis is is uh was considered uh the entire time in which uh in which the consecration happens and so you know there's the parts that when priests are concelebrating they have to pray they say the words with the main celebrant uh, from the Epiclesis all the way actually through the Anamnesis or through that second uh, part right after right after the consecratory prayers. They, they recite all those together. So those are the essential aspects of of the Mass that have to be done. For God, it's happening outside of time, and right. so so it's instantaneous yeah. in God's eyes. For us, because it's happening. The priest has to say all the prayers. When is it happening? It, you know, you can't have the body without the blood, so it all kind of happens at once in right, some, right. some way or another. So you are putting me on the spot. Well, but, uh, no, <laughs> and, and,
1: and the thing is that I somebody, and it may have been Father Fred who said, you know, it, it really doesn't matter exactly. Right. I mean, that's not the important question. Yeah. And so it's probably a silly thing to ask, but but I know people have asked me that, and I and to your point i you know once we start with the epiclesis when obviously the priest puts his hands over the mm-hmm. chalice and calls down the holy spirit and then that's where you know it begins but but i i think there's a great point there we don't want to get caught up in all the little little right. things that was uh that's just one of the things that i lo- when i was a kid i didn't like Eucharistic prayer number one. I liked Eucharistic prayer number two because it was very short. As an adult and as yeah. a Catholic who loves the faith and loves the Eucharist, I just love Eucharistic prayer number one. But it's,
2: yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, Eucharistic prayer one is not heard too much anymore, and it's yeah. there. There's arguments as to which is the most ancient. I've heard good argument. Two is definitely not the most ancient. Three, most people will say that three is the most ancient, written by Hippolytus. But there's actually good evidence that one is actually the most ancient. And the reasoning for that is the way that they are written, uh, with them ending with, and a lot of times the priests will skip over the through Christ our Lord at the end of the different sections of the prayers. I don't. I do it all. Because uh, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it all. But, uh, but the, good, the evidence that was explained to me was that this is the way that the Jewish prayers were written. And that they were written in this form, short spurts of prayer with with a conclusion uh, to God they obviously didn't believe in Jesus but we put through Christ our Lord of course because we do everything through Christ and so there is great evidence that that one is the most ancient and would have been used probably by some of the first century Christians Hippolytus I think was third century don't quote me on that because I'm not hundred percent sure but uh, but it it's probably later and so uh so i actually try to do one on sundays most of the time unless i preach too long then i go to (laughs) to, but the funny thing is if you were to match all of the eucharistic prayers up one to another even from two to one there's like a minute difference there's not even that there's not that much of difference and people i've had people complain about oh father's always doing eucharistic prayer one it's so it's so much longer it's just like it's really a minute longer maybe a minute and a half it's,
1: it's beautiful i love it though i, I do too i, I
2: my, my favorite part of outside of the consecratory prayers is the part where the priest bows down and says may the angel Come uh, coming to uh, take this sacrifice to the altar in heaven. Like I love that part. I uh, always have. Even even when I was a kid, when the priests prayed it, uh, I, I've always loved that part and just the language that is written in there to understand yeah. that we're not alone in this. That the entire church is present during the mass. So
1: that's a beautiful prayer for sure. We are talking on reverence for the Eucharist with Father Brian Lager this morning, and uh, uh, Father, we we talked. You talked about early church fathers. You talked yeah. about you know we talked about the the road to Emmaus. And I always thought about that too. When you when you think in Scripture, you think about really one of the last things Christ did before he died. Obviously, the institution of the Eucharist, and then again after he was mm-hmm. he rose from the dead, and he was with the the apostles on the road to Emmaus. You know, again again he celebrates the Eucharist, yeah. and it's kind of like it's a, you know, from his passion. And death to his resurrection. It kind of bookends that with
2: with, and, and that's why we call it the triduum during Holy Week, right? Because it's it's three days in one. And it, this is a, this is the whole thing with uh, with time for God is non-existent. I mean, God God knows time because He created it, but uh, but in heaven there is no time. But from Holy Thursday night to Easter Vigil, at the moment of the Gloria, we consider that to be one. One mass, one liturgy, uh, one day. tri do um three days in one, um, and, uh, and and so it's it's uh, it's it's putting all of that together, recognizing that we can't have the, we can't have the Eucharist without Christ at the Last Supper, without Christ's death and without His resurrection. It, it's not possible because we have to have all of that to make the Eucharist possible. Christ can't be everywhere in the world at the same time if He has a physical body. And this is also why evangelization is so important. Uh, if, if we think about Christ's ministry on earth in his physical body, it was actually quite limited. Uh, and he really had the 12, and then he had the 72. But, and, and some of the, you know, we, te- we hear about the crowds of 5,000 that he fed, uh, but we don't hear if they be- actually became disciples. Uh, we, there were people that were coming to listen to him speak. So maybe his crowd was 5,000, but after he died, within a few years, the church spread outside of Jerusalem itself, even to Rome. And, uh, and, and the church got much bigger uh, after Christ died. And I don't want to say Christ is not important. Uh, I want to say that the intention of Christ is to send the Holy Spirit to go out into all the world and to spread the news. And that's why we are so important and we need to, and we should, ought to take our faith so seriously. is because we are now those disciples that are meant to go out into the world and, and to preach the gospel. That's one of the things about Vatican II that people people don't understand is that Vatican II was not, it was really not for the priests. It was for the laity to understand their calling to preach the gospel, to go out into the world and to preach. And there's a little known document from Vatican II, um, Apostolice, Apostolice Actuositatem. the Apostolic Actions basically is is the title of it, that is specifically meant for the laity as to their call and, and what they are meant to do. You know, I had never heard of that document ever in my life until we, I heard about it in seminary. And it's a phenomenal document. If you want to know you're calling it as the a, as a laity, find that document and read it. Because that's the one that explains it. You can go to Lumen Gentium and it has the aspect of what the laity are called to. But there's an entire document basically for the laity. And, uh, and, and there's others that John Paul II uh, wrote as well which is obviously much later but, but go and read that to find out what your calling is it's a wonderful wonderful yeah. document and, and hopefully it, it, uh, it changes your heart about what you do with your life and, and the fact that what you do does matter
1: uh, yeah, well, a couple things on that. I know we were required to read it because I can remember that was one I could never pronounce. Um, it's, it's hard, it's <laughs> it's <really laughs> it's hard <really> to pronounce. <laughs> First and foremost, but it, it is a great, and it's not that terribly long no, either. It's not. So, um, and the other thing I think is, as you know, laity, I think sometimes think, well, that's a people a papal document or it's mm-hmm. a, an encyclical, whatever. And I, that's not stuff for me to read. That's just for the priests to read, and that's not. At all, I mean, we are called to really. I, I encourage people to to read. There's so many beautiful uh, encyclicals and so right. many beautiful documents out there. That it's
2: um, it's literally 33 paragraphs. I just looked it up. Wow, which yeah. is extremely short. And at the end, it ends with an exhortation. We're kind of off topic, but that's okay. Uh, (laughs) The exhortation says, The most holy council then, earnestly entreats all the laity in the Lord to answer gladly, nobly, and promptly the more urgent invitation of Christ in this hour and the impulse of the Holy Spirit. Younger persons should feel this call has been directed to them especially, and they should respond to it eagerly and generously. Through this holy synod, the Lord renews his invitation to all the laity to come closer to him every day, recognizing that what is his is also their own, to associate themselves with him in his saving mission. Once again, he sends them into every town and place where he will come, so that they may know that they are co-workers in the various forms and modes of the one apostle of the church, What must be constantly adapted to the new needs of our times, ever productive as they should be in the work of the Lord. They know that their labor in him is not in vain." That's the that's the closing paragraph of that document. Hmm. It's a call to the laity to hmm. go out into the world and preach and to preach the gospel because yeah. because the laity can go places the priest can't. I can't go into the common workplace and uh, and and uh, and and preach the gospel though they'll, they'll let me in the door to buy something <laughs> but they're not going to let me go in the back and talk <laughs> to the workers in the back and start preaching the gospel to them but not only that but the way that we live our life matters and if people look at our life and 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 we are not living this christian call then nobody's going to want to be that and uh and, and if we're not living number one with joy number two living in a a, a close, closely to christ then what's the point um why, why are we doing this at all if, if we're not actually, if our life is not transformed uh, by the Word of God and, and by, the, by the love of God and, and by His Eucharist, which is yeah. His love?
1: Excellent point. And Father, let's talk a little more about, obviously, the Eucharist and, and, and that there's the, we talked about the numbers, mm-hmm. and I think that one of the questions that's been asked, and, and I think it was in 19... 19- I'm not sure if it was 84 or 94 Gallup did a survey back then of Catholics and those numbers were about the same they really hadn't changed much
2: from today or from 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 the Pew okay, research 19, that was done recently okay interesting so, so not, I was the, not aware of that study Yeah this actually.
1: and it's 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 an older survey but the numbers were pretty much very much in line okay and so that we haven't seen a change, which is a little bit scary, I guess, but by the same token, what are some of the things that we can do to help people understand what we receive truly is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of
2: Christ? Yeah, that uh, I think goes back to the exhortation of the uh, there's multiple things that we can do. Number one, talk about it. Uh, Number one, change our life. Uh, uh, When we change our life to live to live as a eucharistic people, to recognize that Christ gives Himself to us in the Eucharist, and that's ultimately what the Eucharist is. Christ promises to us uh, to be with us always until the end of the age, and this is how He does so: with the Eucharist being here, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, through the through the priest, through the sacraments, He is present with us, and allowing the sacraments to actually transform our life so that we live as a Christian people. And and what does it look like to be a Christian people? Uh, we're called a charity. And we will be judged by the way in which we love. And so how are we loving that is different than the common person in the world? And that comes down to looking at uh, the Christians that go to their death loving the person that's going to kill them. We read from St. Stephen yesterday, yesterday and, and, yeah. and his you know his being stoned to death. And what is the words that he prays? He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He prays the same words as, as Jesus. And, and so forgiving the people that are persecuting us, uh, praying for the people that are, that are, Jesus specifically says, pray for those who persecute you. But lo- going out of our way to love, uh, that's, that's what is transformative. Loving the people that are the most difficult to love and, and doing our best to, uh, to, to spread that love into the world. It's easy for me to love those closest to me. It's harder for me to love those people that are completely contrary to me, and that's that's the way that we will we will win people over. Uh, having arguments on Facebook or Twitter or whatever is not going to win people over. And there's there's been huge battles. If anybody's on Twitter, there's been huge Catholic battles the past few weeks on Twitter. It's just like you guys are. This is getting nowhere, and it's really—it's really really actually turning people off from the faith, um, instead of bringing them to the faith. And so we need to love people, and then we need to love them to know Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's—that's—that's the way that we do it. (laughs) Futile. What what I see on Twitter, you know, because people talk about how people go on Twitter and talk about how they're converting to the faith. And it's not arguments on Twitter, but it's people who take their time to do direct messages with these people who talk about how they have questions about the faith. And so I don't know what goes on those direct messages, obviously, but more than likely it's long conversations or they eventually talk person to person or over, over video chat or something like that in order to hand on the faith. The faith is always handed on personally. This is why we can't do any of the sacraments via a phone mm-hmm. is because the sacraments are personal in nature and thus have to be uh, given personally as well. We can't, can't do confessions over the phone, things like that. And, and so And so it's all handed on personally. And so Christ in the Eucharist comes to us personally. And it's not that Christ is changed into us when we receive him, but that we are called to be changed into him the the higher the lower becomes the higher not the higher becomes the lower we are lower than jesus and so we are brought up into him but our lives must be lived in a way that that it then gives witness to that i i, I do these meditations uh, every day based on the book series called in conversation with god by uh francisco fernandez i believe is his mm-hmm. name he's a uh, associated with opus day and uh and phenomenal, phenomenal meditations. And and recently he's been talking about what does it mean to love God? What does it l- mean to live in this relationship with Him? And and our whole relationship with Jesus isn't about getting rid of sin in our lives. That's that's not that's not what we're meant to do. What we are meant to do is to love God. First and foremost, we're meant to love God. And by loving God, what does it mean to love God? But it means to follow God and follow what he says and follow what he does for us. So the commandments are part of what God asks of us. And if we love God, we do what he says and we do what he asks. The Beatitudes are what God says. And so we follow the things that he says. And if our life, if our life is given over to Christ and, and, and we truly love our God and we truly love Jesus, then we're going to Transform our lives, and and when we love Jesus in the in these deep ways, we listen to what He says in the Scriptures. We listen to that long passage that I read from John chapter six, and we realize that He's giving Himself to us in the Eucharist. And so, my life, in order to in order to be able to receive him uh, must be transformed in a way that's going, to, that's going to reflect whom I am receiving. And we go and we can read St. Paul. St. Paul in chapter 11 says, do not receive him unworthily. I, fr- I forget the actual, the actual verse, but I know that St. Paul talks about, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also the cup after supper. The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. St. Paul, as far as we know, didn't meet Jesus, but he's handing on what was given to him. Mm-hmm. And so, and so he, then he's also saying, do not receive unworthily. And so if our life is not matching up with what Christ expects of us, which means that if we have mortal sin in our life, That's the number one thing that we need to do is get that mortal sin out of our life. Mm -hmm. And the sacrament of the Eucharist cannot actually take effect in our lives if we have this blockage of mortal sin. Mortal sin cuts us off from the life sanctifying grace, which is what we receive from the sacraments. And if we are cut off, We are completely dead to that grace. We can receive actual grace because that's what God is pouring into us in order to get us to go back to confession. But we can't receive that sanctifying grace, and we need sanctifying grace to get to heaven. And so we we need the Eucharist in order to help us to unite our lives to him so we can live out this high calling of what it means to live in Jesus Christ.
1: It's uh, one of the things you talked about there, and and as I'm kind of listening to you talk through uh, all of this, One of the things that always comes to mind when I read that passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians Mm -hmm. is if this truly wasn't the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, why would Paul say that and say it so strongly? Do not receive unworthily.
2: Paul, as you know, um, is the most, says in the strongest way possible to not receive the sacraments in sin, and you know in, in other pass in other things that Paul writes, he gives lists of sins that that actually cut us off from the life of grace, mm-hmm. and uh, and and they're often very bodily sins, sexual sins, drunkenness, licentiousness, things like that, fornication, adultery, uh, things like that, and, and so he's very explicit uh, that you cannot receive the sacraments when you when you are in the yeah. state of sin like this, yeah. and following false doctrines, people that people that there's many things out there of the false doctrines that people follow. We need to. Change our minds and our hearts, and Saint Paul says, "Do not be transformed by, the, do not be conformed, do not be transformed by the world, but be conformed." However, he says it in Romans. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> do not be, do not be conformed <laughs> to the world, but be transformed by the renewal right. of your mind. Yeah, yeah. I think what it was, right? yeah, I've got a few things that I, that I want to touch on that that I think are important for us all here. So, so after after understanding, coming to a deeper understanding uh, of the Eucharist, even even in my own life, it, it began to transform my. My, my own reverence and, and my own piety towards the Eucharist. And so, so what, what is reverence, actually? Reverence is that virtue which inclines a person to show honor and respect primarily to God, but also to one's parents, civil authorities, and to religious leaders. Here we are concerned with reverence to God in the person of Jesus Christ in the August sacrifice and sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, this is coming from something that Cardinal Rinze said, actually. God is holy. He is all holy. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Sabaoth. His glory fills the whole earth. Sing the seraphim angels before God's throne in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. He is holiness itself, he is transcendent, he dwells in light and accessible, first uh, Timothy chapter 6. And so as part of the virtue of religion to show reverence to God, religion actually falls under the virtue, uh, uh, cardinal virtue of justice as well, to respect his name and to honor everything connected with him, persons, places, or objects. Cardinal Newman emphasizes the importance of this reverential stance before God. And so are these feelings of, Cardinal Newman says, are these feelings of fear and awe Christian feelings or not? I say this then, which I think no one can reasonably dispute. There are the class of feelings which we should have, yes, have have to an intense degree. If we literally have the sigh of Almighty God, therefore, there are the class of feelings which we shall have if we realize his presence in proportion as we believe that he is present. We shall have them, and not to have them is is not to realize, not to believe that he is present. This reverence is due to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, to Jesus Christ is due our reverence in Bethlehem, at the Lake of Galilee, on the cross, and in the Holy Eucharist. So, how can we practically show reverence to the Eucharist? I've got eight things uh, that, that I think will help us to show reverence to the Eucharist. Number one, to be in the state of grace, we need to go to confession regularly. Not once a year, not twice a year. Hopefully we are examining our conscience every day at the end of the day, as you and I do when we pray night prayer. Uh, But also, uh, hopefully hopefully we get into this practice and go to confession, hopefully monthly. Monthly is a great great way to do that. The way in which we receive can show great reverence, whether we're standing, kneeling, or on the tongue. now, if you're receiving on the tongue, don't make it difficult for the priest or, or the deacon or the exhorting minister to give communion. Don't give them, just don't open your mouth just enough so it's like a coin slot. That makes it extremely difficult to, put the, to give you the Eucharist. Uh, but also, uh, don't be moving around uh, You know, when you give communion. You see all kinds of things when you're giving communion. People will move their head and you're just like, where am I supposed to give you communion? <laughs> uh, and, and so, stand still. Uh, give an act of reverence before you come forward. You know, in, in the United States, it's bowing to give a profound Bow. If you receive in the hand, this is this is the thing that's extremely important. The church uh, in the United States we're allowed to receive in the hand, and that's fine. But you must always check your hands for crumbs. Always, 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 there are crumbs from the Eucharist. And so, when you're walking away, don't just brush your hands off and allow the Lord to fall to the ground, but to check your hand for the crumbs that are. That are still left there. This is one of the reasons that when, before I was a priest, I changed receiving communion because of that. Um, I, I received in the hand for the majority of my life, and then I started receiving on the tongue because I always saw crumbs. And so I was like, I'm not going to take that chance anymore. Even, even when I'm purifying at the altar on the patent that I use, there's always crumbs. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter uh, what kind of host I use. There's always crumbs
1: which brings up a great point and this is something that I've experienced because I used to receive on the hand too and as a eucharistic uh, extraordinary minister of holy communion when you do that and you're up on the altar and you see crumbs well how are you going to take care exactly. of that and then I mean because you've already sanitized your hands right but if i take my
2: you know. There you go. That's that, that's what I recommend to people. Yeah. They said, "Well, what do I do?" I said, "Well, lick your finger and and dot your hand where the crumbs are, and then lick your finger again and consume consume right. those crumbs because we are we believe that every particle is the body and blood of Jesus. So we need to be respectful to that. Uh, number three, how we dress actually is a, is a phenomenal way in which we can show reverence. Are we just showing up to another? school event that we wear jeans and t-shirts to mass or are we actually dressing up because this is the sacrifice of the mass and this is god coming becoming present how we carry ourselves are we uh before and after mass are we just coming in and and uh just having random conversations are we actually preparing ourselves um when we leave uh when we speak about god out in the world how, how are we carrying ourselves as catholics our personal prayer coming early to pray And then staying after to give thanks. Coming early to prepare our hearts, to recognize, should I even be receiving? Uh, That's one thing, you know, St. Paul says, uh, do not receive unworthily. One of the ways that we can receive unworthily is to be completely distracted all of Mass and to walk up and receive Communion. We are not prepared. We need to be prepared to receive Holy Communion. It used to be the practice that you didn't receive every single week. And then after Vatican II... I'm not saying the Vatican II is the problem. I'm saying the understanding is that people started receiving every week. And it's just like, is that necessary, number one? And can you be prepared every week? I think some people can. uh, But we need to actually discern, am I prepared to receive as often as I do? And I think this time of the coronavirus should help us discern whether or not we should be receiving as much as we do. But we should be going to confession more often if we are receiving the communion that often. Mm. So you get all your points? No, I have more, but I see we're out of time. Yeah. And I, I,
1: <laughs> I, I can
2: I can run, run through them real quick. Uh, sure. Personal prayer, going to adoration, uh, spending time with our Lord, doing the sign of the cross when we pass a Catholic church, recognizing his, his presence, genuflecting when we enter our pew or we, when we cross in front of the tabernacle, um, and then getting to know Jesus personally through the scripture and quiet meditation. Now, if we find that we are not prepared when we come to mass, then an sp- act of spiritual communion, the mm-hmm. spiritual communion is that we been doing and offering uh during this time but getting getting to confession is is extremely important for us uh in in this time in in order to prepare ourselves so all right um, but yeah thanks again appreciate it thank
1: you father brian always good to talk to you take care yeah all
0: Thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, internet, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. If you would like to comment on today's show or have an idea for a future show, please go to DVMercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon.